Hello out there. You're listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm the Reverend Mary Vano, and today I'm pleased to welcome Richie Marsh as our guest host. I got to know Richie when his family moved to Little Rock and became members of St. Margaret's. He's been my son's baseball coach and history teacher and also a good family friend. Now they are moving back to Tennessee, so I am glad for this chance to have another good conversation before he goes. So Richie, it has occurred to me that someone whose chosen vocation is to teach history to teenagers must be someone with a kind of hopeful outlook. I know teachers make a lot of sacrifices for their work, but I also know from the teachers that I know that they do it because it brings them some joy. So Richie, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what got you here? What do you love about history and why have you chosen to teach it to high school students? It's sort of hopeful in a different way. In high school, I was instructed in a very sanitized version of American history. When it hit me like midway through the year, this was pre-internet, so we couldn't just look everything up. But through reading books and and whatnot through that year, it, it sort of hit me that I was not really getting the full picture, the full perspective of American history. And so I had sort of decided at that point that I wanted to be a history professor in college, research and add to the historical dialogue that was the American story. As things started to materialize, I realized that teaching in high school was a much better way to influence and have more impact, more wide impact on the education of Americans. And so I sort of decided to go that route. It does bring a lot of joy to me to be able to provide young adults with tools to learn American history. We don't give them all the facts, that kind of thing. It's not what real teachers do nowadays. We don't just give them facts. We try to give them tools so that when they encounter pieces of history later on that they're interested in, and as an adult, they can be able to understand it and research it on their own and put it into context, both in terms of world history and American history. So it does bring me a lot of joy to do that kind of stuff. I'm very glad to be able to continue to do that. I'm really glad that you chose to teach high school students because I think you're right that we can make a bigger difference when we reach people when they're young, before all their ideas are formed. And that's such an interesting discovery that you had that you were being taught a sanitized version of the American story. So as you've deepened your knowledge of that story, have you found that there's a particular historical era that you are drawn to? What do you like to study and teach? I enjoy studying a ton. In fact, what I did in grad school is not even what I teach. I did pre-Columbian Mesoamerican history in grad school. I don't even teach that. I did a little bit at Episcopal. But for the most part, my research interests and my educational interests center around what's called the Gilded Age and Progressive Era in America. And the world had one of these as well. But in America, that's generally seen is from like late 1870s into Reconstruction in 77, all the way through the 1920 presidential election when Wilson had moved on. And that little period called the Gilded Age of Progressive Era has always been very intriguing to me. It's the one that we literally just skipped it. You know, we talked about the Spanish-American War when I was in high school, and then we just skipped the rest of it. There was so much more going on there from so many different types of people, all the different cultures that make up America. It's never failed to drive me to read the next essay or the next journal article or the next book or whatever. You know, I've probably got an embarrassing amount of history books, and over three-fourths of them at least are about the Gilded Age of Progressive in America. It has helped me a lot, especially in this modern era that we're in of racial strife and even epidemics. I mean, they, they had a couple of them in the era that we're talking about, but it's helped me keep things in perspective in the last few years. 
I'm very grateful that I was able to find that as an interest, but that's sort of the area that I've really specialized in. And I really, honestly, I teach it the best as well. Kids enjoy it as well. So what is it about the Gilded Age that has influenced where we are now? How has that been brought forward or has it? In American history, you can see patterns if you step back and look at it on a macro scale. There are periods of fundamentalism and traditionalism in terms of culture and politics and even economics. It's usually followed by an era of what's called progressivism or expanding democracy to other cultures and people and social and economic classes, etc. That's sort of the way the ebb and flow of American history goes. And knowing that has really helped me keep things in perspective when I don't get my own personal political way, whatever that is over the years. It's helped me keep in perspective that things usually are cyclical and they change. And because of one, you get the other generally in American history. That's the way it goes. The students that I've had really have done a good job of seeing that big picture. We've done a lot of timelining and that kind of thing in classes. And it is tougher usually to study American history on a large scale like that. It's usually easier just to dive into a particular topic and go find quotes and primary sources about it and stuff like that. But to think about it on a grand scale, sometimes kind of confusing and mind boggling. But I think if you look at it like that, it's really easy to keep your mind at ease about the state of where things are, that kind of thing. And things do change. And they will change. And because of X, you will have a Y. And then after that, you'll have another period of X, probably, and then another period of Y. That doesn't mean that's the way things are going to go, but that's, that's the way things have gone in American history over the course of the last 204 years. So it's like time itself, our history itself, finds a balance from one era to the next. And that's sort of the American story, honestly, is balance, Mm -hmm. always staving off the radical. A lot of places have succumbed to radical tendencies, whether it be extreme, you know, left of political ideology or economic ideology or the extreme right of political or economic ideology. Mm -hmm. And America is mostly rebuffed all those chances to do so. We've definitely had our opportunities. I mean, FDR could have been a tyrant if he wanted to have been. I mean, America was in that desperate of a spot economically and probably socially as well, but chose not to be. And the parties at that time chose not to be, which I think is important. And that is part, like you said, of the American story is balance and center, a rejection of extremism of all kinds. much of a historian, but I do, as a theologian, have a particular way of thinking about time. Christians understand that God is eternal and also that God has existed in time from the beginning, from creation all the way to the moment when God chose to be incarnate in Jesus, entering into human history, and at every moment in between. And since then, God has been present and active in the world. So we make this paradoxical claim that God exists both outside of time and inside of time. In the eternal sense, God has accomplished the salvation of all of us. And yet, in the temporal sense, we still reflect the brokenness of our humanity. So we live with this tension, knowing how God has worked in history, believing also that God is present with us now, and trusting that God's promises will be and are being fulfilled. So you can hear this actually in the way that we worship and the things that we say in our worship. For instance, in the Eucharistic prayers, in prayer A, the whole congregation says, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. 
You hear that change in the verb tenses from has to is to will come. In prayer B, something similar. It says, we remember his death. We proclaim his resurrection. We await his coming in glory. So we think about what we are recalling from the past into the present. So we're remembering, we're proclaiming. That's what we're doing right now. And we're also awaiting a future that is not yet fulfilled. As Christians, it often feels like we're living at every moment in the intersection of time. And it's here where St. Paul says it's up to us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So I'm curious, Richie, what do you see being worked out in the history that is unfolding right now? What lessons from the past would be useful for us to remember as we're going through this? A, it'll get better. B, America usually finds a way to heal itself. When I say that, I usually mean white America. This is generally excluded persons of color, et cetera, the fall of Reconstruction. All that stuff is usually at the expense of people of color and even things that are beloved by literally every American just about, like national parks. That was at the expense of the indigenous people that live there. We do need to keep that stuff in mind as we move forward. After all this is over, the pandemic is over, the whatever's going on right now socially and racially, when this is over, freedoms and liberties need to be expanded to everyone. Every single American should be afforded the same opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, that have previously been reserved for white males most of the time. That's a very difficult conversation to have because most of America has been white male dominated for such a long time. And so a lot of Americans, especially white males like myself, have been have found it really difficult to talk about and have that conversation So I think keeping that stuff in mind as we go forward, if we keep our eyes on that goal at all times, like are we expanding freedoms and liberties to the same blessings of liberty to every single American, regardless of how new they are or how dark they are? Is that what we're working toward right now? If not, then it's probably not the right goal. As in the here and now, I think some of the lessons from the past are honestly the most important lesson. Very glad that I've taught this to my young adults over the years is that most of America hated Martin Luther King Jr. in the 60s. In the 50s, in the early 60s, obviously, he was a controversial figure. But by 65, 66, 67, and 68, when he was killed in April of that year, he had a 75% disapproval rating. This is very telling for both history and kind of what we're going through right now, in that in the years since then, he's been viewed a lot differently by America and how we remember MLK has really told me a lot about how Americans handle history. We don't like to remember the things that make us uncomfortable. We like to remember him standing the steps of Lincoln's feet and saying that he has a dream that his kids could play with white kids in the street. And that was just on a day in 1963. But most of the other time, he's blasting American imperialism and social inequality, economic inequality. He's really talking about some very uncomfortable things that apparently most of America didn't want to talk about. Not only did not want to talk about it, they, they didn't want to, they didn't like what he was saying. And so the whitewashing and sanitization of MLK in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where every town in America has got an MLK Boulevard and can get an MLK license plate, and we have MLK Day, all these you know corporate business places will tweet out an MLK quote. But I, I don't think they really understand what MLK was about. And if 
we think about that now, as we view some of the leaders out there in the streets, if we keep that in mind, I think it might change how we understand or try to listen to some of what's going on. I think a lot of Americans, and I can speak from experience because I have family members this way, and they automatically reject, you know, what they're seeing and what they're hearing because it doesn't fit with the way they see the world. If we learn anything from MLK and all that stuff is that we should listen to the whole thing, the whole message Mm -hmm. of what's being said and try to understand instead of immediately conjuring up a defense and a rebuttal and everything's an argument. I'm blessed in that I'm able to try to find all perspectives of all given issues. I was trained that way as a historian, as an undergrad and in grad school. And so it's easy for me, but it's not easy for a lot of Americans. They've been programmed by their televisions and radios and drunk uncles at Thanksgiving for decades. And it's hard and it's uncomfortable. I think that that is some lessons from history on both in the short term and the long term and how we can view some of this stuff in the here and now. And it is difficult. It is hard, but America can do it. It's going to take a lot of leadership from people that aren't accustomed to doing stuff like that to make it happen. conversations are the necessary thing for working out our salvation with fear and trembling and realizing that God is working in us. But it does mean that we have to be brave to really listen, willing to learn from the perspective of others as we seek those new paths. So what are you hopeful about right now, Richie? I'm hopeful that I can get all this packed in the next week. Um, <laughs> oh, you weren't talking about that. No. <laughs> but we're going to miss you, Richie. <laughs> Please don't edit that out. I want it to stay in. <laughs> My only, only joke. I am hopeful for the future. The, the kids today, I don't know how to put this. I don't possess the words, but they're delightfully cynical. We grew up distrusting everything because uh, we were Gen Xers. They're delightfully cynical in that they want to question everything. They want to research everything. And as a parent, it really, really upsets me. Because I'm like, hey, go clean your room. Well, why? Because I said so. As a teacher, it's totally different. We're doing a lesson like, hey, uh, just as an example I used earlier, three quarters of Americans really, really did not like MLK in 1966. The kids will say, well, why? And that's fantastic. I'm not sure that's the way it was when I was taking that class in the 90s. I know nobody in my class was like that. It might have been different in other areas, but I can only assume this generation is more of a, I want to know why. And that is really, really, really cool and awesome. And it provides me with a ton of hope for the future. They don't put up with any trash. This generation doesn't. (laughs) I'm talking the last 10 years of kids, not just this past year. And they do it in their own different way. It might not always be in your face and that kind of stuff. But if they see some injustice, they're going to they're going to deal with it. Now, a lot of times that's online and they're being a keyboard warrior, but that's okay. Still dealing with it. That does provide me with a lot of hope. Me too. It seems like if young people are able to think critically and ask questions and stand up for what they believe is right, then we do have a lot to be hopeful about. So you've been my son's history teacher. Do you have like one lesson that you hope he will hang on to? Something I need to remind him about from history (laughs) as he goes forward. What's, What's the one thing you hope all your students will remember? 
Golly, I don't know. This is mighty awkward. Uh, <laughs> my how the turntables right now. Probably the best lesson I teach is, of course, you know, teachers don't really teach nowadays. They just give kids the tools to learn stuff and chauffeur them around and let them do it on their own, that kind of thing. But the best lesson that we go over as a class, we connect the analogies in The Wizard of Oz to the populism of the 1890s. And it's become before 2015-ish, that lesson sort of fell on deaf ears and it was sort of a, oh, this is pretty cool and then let's move on, that kind of thing. But since we've had a lot of populists on both sides of the political spectrum, a lot of populist sort of quote-unquote uprisings in the last five years, that lesson's sort of taken on a different meaning for a lot of kids. They don't watch the news all the time, but they know what's going on. You almost can't escape it anymore especially on social media. And so they're able to make some of those connections from the populist uprisings of the farmers and other people, industrialists in the 1890s to modern times. And and that's pretty cool. They're not all the way related politically, of course, but just the idea of populism itself can be sort of daunting to try to learn for a 16 or 17 year old. But I hope that sticks with them because I think you're going to see a different kind of populism pop up in in the future. And I hope that sticks with them. Ask Drew. I don't know. Get him on the horn here. Ask him. I don't know. All right. I'll have to ask him later. (laughs) I enjoyed watching him at the end of the school year when you had your students do a cooking lesson on Zoom. (laughs) And since he doesn't... You guys were watching that? Parents were watching that? (laughs) No, I did not watch it. I just (laughs) observed that he was doing it. And then I observed the product. I don't stand by anything in those cooking classes, that's for sure. Well, I think that he might need more of those cooking classes from you, Richie. For our listeners, you know, history is a topic we all need to learn from. Is there a book that you would recommend? For my Arkansas people, I really recommend Blood in Their Eyes by Griff Stockley. He's a local retired attorney. He wrote a history book on the worst, the largest mass lynching in American history. And it happened in Arkansas been sort of scrubbed from Arkansas history. It's not something that Arkansas has really ever confronted. It's not required to be taught in any public school in Arkansas. In fact, that's what our class was working on this year because it was the 100-year anniversary. And September and October of 2019 was the 100-year anniversary of the event. And so we were working on a year-long documentary when the coronavirus got us. So we had to cease working on that. And quite frankly, I'm not sure we were going to get finished anyway. But I really recommend the Arkansas people read that book or another one around it. Cameron McWhorter wrote one about the Red Summer that features a lot of the Elaine Massacre. And Elaine is a tiny town, you know, 45 miles southwest of Memphis on the Mississippi River. And there were upwards of hundreds of black men and women killed over a two or three day period. Like I said, it's been sort of uh, something that Arkansas has not really ever wanted to confront. It's not in the state standards for education in public schools. I really recommend Arkansans confront that, learn about it, 
try to move forward. It'll provide a lot of healing for a lot of Arkansans in East Arkansas and beyond. Those families are still sort of tore up by that. I got to meet a bunch of them in 2019, so I reckon that for sure. He's not a historian, so it's not very bland. Most history books are written <laughs> by professors, and it's like there's no passive voice in it, and there's no like mm-hmm. embellishing or any kind of, you know, there's no romance or any, anywhere in it. <laughs> here's what happened, and here's my proof that it happened, and here's what I'm saying about it, and that's it. It's very good, but it's not really dry. Well, I will recommend as a follow-up to learning about the Elaine Massacre is to read James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which does a great job of understanding the practice of lynching and its association with the Roman practice of crucifixion. So good reading to do. Going back a little bit to our theology of history, we as Christians do see God at work in us and through us. Sometimes it's good to remember that it's not just us at work, that we do have our parts play, but God is here with us. A little anecdote about Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. Apparently in the afternoon, Luther, a good German, liked to take a break for a beer. And his pal and fellow reformer, Philip Melanchthon, would usually resist that, saying there's just too much work to be done, too much reform that we need to give our attention to. And Luther's response to that was, God is at work even when we are drinking beer. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you could appreciate that story, Richie. Right. Yes, very much so. Good to remember that we can take a break and enjoy life and know that God is at work. And I also just wanted to share this quote from a book called Calendar by Lawrence Holstucky. This is a book that I read back in seminary about how Christians can understand time. He said, Christians are called to assume a cruciform posture, standing upright with feet firmly planted in the present. We stretch out one arm to grasp our heritage and the other arm to lay hold of our hope. Standing thus, we assume the shape of our central symbol of faith, the cross. So here we are in this moment of history, and God is here with us and has been with us and is leading us in to a hopeful future. Richie, thank you for joining us today. This this has been a lot of fun for me, and I hope it has been for you. Our joy is complete. I thank you all for listening, and I want to remind you to send in your questions or comments. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. Please do listen again next time, and remember that our J-O-Y is incomplete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. <laughs>